You're listening to the How and Steve English podcast, a comfy place to talk about all the great and not so great parts of teaching ESL abroad. I'm Steve, and today we're going to talk to Jack Lowalki, an ESL teacher who started in 2001, and he's currently the CEO of Shane English South Korea and the man behind Living Korea and Crypto Father YouTube channels. Stay tuned. Okay, we're really excited to talk to Jack today, but before we do, we got to plug all the plugs in the world. So head to howandsteveenglish.com to get unlimited access to over a thousand ESL resources. Check it out. It's cool. It's kind of cool, I guess. Anyway, it's fun. All right, Jack, uh, thanks for coming on. So I've been really excited to talk to you um, for a while just because your YouTube channel is really awesome. I watch it and Hal watches it and then I showed my wife recently you had a really cool series on um, your vacation which is really important to me as an ESL teacher in South Korea it's kind of hard to like find the time to go abroad can you tell me a bit about that channel and what you've been doing kind of day to day yeah sure so um, the channel is the birth child of, of something that I've been planning on doing for a very long time um, and uh, it just so happened that um, the last year's surge in cryptocurrencies is basically what kind of prompted me to start it. So my initial channel name was Crypto Father, which is to this day confusing. <clears throat> and it created a trap for, for the channel on, on YouTube because I can't really get away from it now because I've had the channel under the name for so long. Um, but so my initial videos were uh, around the topic of cryptocurrencies, um, which slowly over time I realized was not really uh, something that I wanted to pursue because I've been living in Korea, you know, since 2005, really. Um, my wife and I left for a couple of years right after we got married and then we came back in 2010 and so I've been living in Korea ever since. Um, and with time I you know looking back in my life here I realized that I've I've done so much there are so many things that I've done so many adventures and I kind of thought I wanted to start you know um, recording that and um, and so I, I moved away from the cryptocurrency world um, the very minuscule cryptocurrency world that I had going on the channel and I started making videos about South Korea because I thought that would be a lot more fun a lot more interesting um, and uh, you know I figured, uh, why not? <laughs> uh, I thought it would be a good good thing to do, like to show my family, because I don't really stay in touch with my family all that much, unfortunately. Uh, life keeps me busy. And I thought this would be a good uh, way of kind of sharing my life with my family in Canada and my friends, um, as well as maybe building something of a memory track for my, my children here. Yeah, I, I know I plan to talk to you about how you became an ESL teacher first, but I love that YouTube channel. And everything you just said is basically what I've talked to my wife about. I'm just like, all of these videos that, that Jack's making, like, my parents don't get to see our kids that often. Yeah. Um, I'm, it's really important to me to kind of catch these memories, like all these awesome moments that we have as a family. And I think maybe you've kind of, you've got a really interesting niche there. You know, the husbands and the, and the wives who are expats mm. who end up living abroad and i think it's it's so interesting to see somebody else live that life and and it you can really empathize so much with it yeah yeah and it's not always an easy life um i, I don't know steve is your wife korean as well yeah yeah she's ah, okay okay so we probably go through a lot of the same 
um, situations, life experiences uh, on, on, to some degree. Um, and it's, uh, I don't know if it's the cultural barriers that people struggle with or it's just the gender, gender differences, but uh, yeah, <laughs> they're always fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking politely now, yeah. you know, our wives might be watching this. So. <laughs> yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really cool. Um, so I guess to get back on track, mm. I'd love to know, were you an ESL teacher at home or did you always want to be an ESL teacher? How did you get involved in ESL teaching? Uh, so basically I kind of stumbled into it in a similar way that you and Hal did, it seems. Uh, I've listened to your last podcast and uh, you guys um, talked about it a little bit and it seems that, I, that, that we have a similar background in that. Um, I started teaching ESL in 2001, I believe or so. Um, while at university and um, uh, while I was doing my, th I was in my third year, I was in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia um, and uh, I picked up ESL teaching as a part-time job um, and I was doing that for a year to a couple of students so that was in 2001 I believe. Um, surprisingly I was teaching Korean students, there was a lot of Korean um, parents, Korean kids, um, or parents with their kids coming to, to Vancouver, Canada. And so I was teaching that clientele. Wow. And then uh, uh, upon graduation, um, I started, well, the last year of my undergrad studies, I started looking at um, traveling to, to Japan because that was the thing to do. A lot of people were talking about it, you know, it was one way of paying off your student loans and a good way to travel. Um, I was kind of looking at the traveling side um, as the uh, the hook for me to to escape, you know, Canadian life, especially mm -hmm. in winter in in, in Winnipeg, because it's one of the coldest cities in Canada, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, Japan was kind of a fantasy of mine. Visiting Japan was a fantasy of mine for a long time, so all these aspects kind of came together. Um, and I, I, you know, I got to push finally with a friend. We made a move, and and uh, that was in 2004. So I did a year in Japan in Tokyo. Uh, very good, very interesting year. And then after that, I uh, um, I moved to South Korea in 2005. Wow. So that's a really interesting route to go. I've I've often I want to ask you about you know teaching in Japan and the lifestyle and the teachers groups over there. But before I do, I like to ask you about that big transition or the big decision to go abroad because I think everybody plans to do one or yeah. two years but what interests me is you know long-term expats right. what did you think before you left what how did you view this new adventure of yours um, <clears throat> I well my personality kind of does not allow me for long term for set for the setting for, for the setting of long-term goals <laughs> so I never really uh, do things you know with uh, like a prolonged goal in mind thinking I'll be there for two years uh, so when I was leaving for Japan it was more of a I'm going to Japan and I don't know what's going to happen next uh, kind of deal um, and uh, like I said I, I left with a friend I went with a friend and and that basically was the push because I think if I was by myself, I would have taken <clears throat> it would have taken a little bit longer for me to leave Canada. Um, but yeah, the goal was to just to, to go uh, travel, visit Japan, 
Um, and in order to do that, you need an income, and the best and the quickest way to you know to find a job in Japan was to teach English, because graduating with a uh, you know undergrad uh, psychology degree, I think Hal has the exact same background, right? Yeah, he does. He does. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to do with with that anything with that unless you have an MA, uh, at least in psychology. So. Um, yeah, so I really didn't have any long-term goals in mind. Um, I wanted to go to Japan. I guess I was planning on staying in Japan for a lot longer, but like I said, life kind of, you know, takes me left and right and, and I kind of go along with it. What was it like, the flight over there and then maybe the first week or the first month of living yeah. in a completely different country? You know, not even... You know, going to a foreign country, going to a non-Western country, I think it's really shocking or maybe very interesting for people. Yeah, it was. Actually, the first um, 24 hours were, I was kind of in a dream state. Um, you know, there was jet lag. Uh, there was the fact that I hadn't slept for, I don't know, a prolonged period of time. I, I'm not a very good sleeper uh, on the planes or trains or whatever. So, um, you know, the flight is about 10 hours, I think, from Canada to, to Tokyo. Um, and uh, by the time I arrived, I must have been awake for probably like a good 18 hours or, or a little bit less. And then we arrived somewhere uh, early in the day, uh, which meant that if I had gone to sleep then, well, first of all, we didn't have any accommodations arranged. Um, um, or we did, but we had to find it. Nonetheless, um, we arrived early in the day. Uh, and so as, as a result, I wanted to push through the day, uh, you know, and go to sleep at a decent hour in the evening which means that I was up for over 24 hours. So by the time evening came, I think around six o'clock, I was literally, um, I felt like somebody hit me over the head and I was just kind of walking, stumbling through the cities of Tokyo, dazed and confused. Um, uh, when the evening rolled around, <clears throat> you know, we stayed in the Ryokan first night, which is like a traditional Japanese guest house, I guess, or a hotel. And uh, 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 the Ryokans are made uh, in a, traditional Japanese way in which the the doors are made of like the rice paper um, and wood so any and all sounds that occur outside of the the room it's almost like you know it's right next to you and so my experience my whole night experience was just like on, on the verge of delusional um, strangeness it was just most bizarre evening I, I had hallucinations I thought there was somebody in our room there was nobody there but uh, um, so yeah the first first day was quite strange and then uh, when you get to Japan as an ESL teacher or if that's your goal uh, for the most part you need to find a job um, once you're there like Korea has this thing where you can apply for a job uh, from abroad um, and then you come here and you're basically you know heading straight for, for your employers uh, for your accommodations Whereas Japan, um, for the most part, I don't know if there are any companies that actually do hire, or ESL companies or schools that hire people abroad, but for the most part, you get to Japan and then it takes about three weeks uh, to find a job. Uh, so prior to leaving Canada, wow. I, I read through The Lonely Planet, and basically that's what they said. It's going to take you about three weeks uh, to find to secure a job three weeks or three months oh geez i don't remember now <laughs> could i ask you yeah. about that really quickly that's yeah. really interesting so it, that's even scarier so you didn't secure a contract you didn't 
have any discussions with recruiters before you arrived in Japan, you literally decided that I want to teach in Japan, and I guess I'll have to figure it out when I get there. Yeah, yeah, basically. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, and and uh, so the st statistics said it'll take you a certain amount of time to secure your your job. I guess it's about three months, possibly. I can't remember exactly. Anyway, um, I basically fell into the rubric of the expectations. It. Um, I applied, you know, every day I would apply for, for jobs. There was a lot of advertisements, so I applied here and there and everywhere. Uh, finally, I got um, an interview. Uh, Japan holds uh, two interviews. There's the introductory interview, and then there's the second kind of welcoming interview. It takes about um, three months for, for the employers, for the government to process your, your visa, um, at which point most employers kind of hire you um, uh, and you work, you know, illegally, so to speak. And then once the visa is processed, you need to leave the country and then re-enter it, and you get a work visa upon re-entry. So that's basically what I did. Wow. So what type of uh, academy or public school did you end up working at? Uh, so the first first uh, school that I worked in was a um, uh, an adult. Uh, language school uh, an adult meaning there were no children all the students were 18 and up <clears throat> um, so it was actually it was a very good first year experience because uh, it uh, you know um, eliminated the pressure that comes from like teaching children for the first time uh, teaching adults was a little bit more relaxed you know uh, you can communicate with adults a little better it makes teaching a lot easier especially for uh, inexperienced teachers such as I when I was there um, and so uh, yeah the, the overall experience was really great actually um, a lot of the students because there were most most students were in their you know early 20s uh, this was a decade ago as well so I wasn't an old geezer like I am right now <laughs> so um, you know we were able to hang out with the with the students after classes and you know had soccer games on the weekends we'd go out um, drinking, hanging out, and it was, it was a good social scene. Could you tell me about the relationships that you made in the first week or first month and, and kind of what you guys ended up developing into, maybe lifelong friends, maybe short-term friends, and, and what did you guys do for fun? What did you guys end up doing for fun in Japan in 2004? Um, so, I can't remember the first week or month, to be honest with you, um, of, my, oh, that's of right. my employment there, but... Uh, uh, some of the teachers, some of the students even, I talk to this day still. There's a couple of students that, I, uh, that I'm still friends with on Facebook. Um, there's a couple of former Japanese teachers and, and uh, uh, like I worked with uh, um, Australians and Kiwi, uh, New Zealanders, uh, sorry, New Zealanders and Tas one Tasmanian student, uh, Jesus, Tasmanian teacher. Um, there was a couple of guys from England, so I basically remained in contact with most of the teachers, uh, the foreign teachers, as well as some of the Japanese teachers and a couple of students. So this is like, you know, a, a decade later, over a decade later, and we're still in touch. Um, and uh, I don't know, Japan, Japan is a pretty expensive place to live, as you can imagine, especially Tokyo, right? Um, so some of the things that we did with the students were, like I said, we'd hang out, <clears throat> go and play soccer on the weekends, uh, uh, go out drinking because everybody was, you know, legal drinking age. Um, 
we sometimes book excursions. Tokyo, there's a lot of stuff to do in and around of Tokyo. Um, so we'd uh, uh, just go explore, hop on the train and, and, you know, drive in one direction. It took three hours to get to a beach <laughs> outside of Tokyo. Um, yeah, those, those are the things we used to do. On a future podcast, if you're gracious enough to come back, I'm going to have to have you compare Japan to Korea for me, the teaching lifestyle and, the, and what life's like in the different academies. Yeah, sure. Schools. <laughs> I was curious, though, in that first year, did you ever experience any really big cultural differences that gave you a hard time? And if so, how'd you overcome them? Um, hmm, that's hard to see. Uh, clearly, there's, you know, Japan is very different. Um, uh, I guess the new thing was that um, uh, if uh, Tokyo has a very, there's a hard right wing um, um, uh, sentiment going on around Tokyo, and you would have uh, little vans kind of cruising around Tokyo downtown, blaring through their speakers in Japanese blaring like right-wing propaganda um, urging foreigners to to basically leave Japan and get out of get out of Tokyo so uh, I didn't know what it was until one of my colleagues mentioned that and you know for the most part we just laughed it off because it's not it's not really invasive it's not non-threatening and it I, I think it comes from like the older uh, generation Japanese uh, the younger crowd uh, tend to be very um, you know just they're really laid-back people, I guess, in some sense. Um, <clears throat> but there is a very strong working etiquette in Japan, as you know. I, I think you know, and most of the world can imagine. Um, you will see, uh, like, uh, salary men kind of stumbling about late at night, drunk. Um, and these are the same, very same men that go to bed for five hours, wake up early in the morning, and then head back to work. Um, so, like, Tokyo itself is a very interesting city. Um, uh, there are, like, pockets of, isolated pockets of um, uh, the population that have their own niches of doing things. Uh, um, in a busy city, like, I don't know, there's tw 12 million people living in Tokyo. So it's massive. And, you know, some of the bu busiest uh, intersections, like, have you ever watched uh, Lost in Translation, the movie? I did many years ago. I can recall yeah, bits of it. That that movie, I found that movie to be uh, very good in, in kind of conveying the sentiment that uh, the experience of living in Tokyo, um, it's got like this strangeness to it. And that's what it feels like to live in Tokyo. There's 12 million people, but when you are in like Shinjuku or Shibuya, uh, and you're crossing one of the, like, the iconic intersection that has, that is, is just a massive intersection, and it's got, like, 12 different, you know, ways in which you can, directions in which you can go, and there's just crowds and crowds of people passing, but it's almost like everyone of these people lives in their own world, and if you happen to bump into one of them, they'll, they'll be startled that there's another person in front of them, you know? So, like, you live in this uh, kind of ant hive of, of movement, but every single uh, of these ants lives in their own kind of little world. So it's a very, very bizarre, almost an alienating experience, you know? So that's, that's a major cultural difference, I think, I would say. 
did you and your friend who you went to Japan with end up having similar experiences? Uh, no, no. Our experiences were, were very different. So first of all, like I was working, uh, she was not, um, and uh, basically she left after six months of being in Japan. So um, yeah, she was there for as a tourist kind of for six months. Yeah. Okay. So you didn't really need her support after a no. while. Probably after no, that first no. month. Like we were there for so, um, yeah, three months as tourists. Because Canada, upon entry to Japan, you get like an automatic three months tourist visa. So that's what we got. And then we left um, Japan. We went to Thailand, and then you know renewed our visa for another three months upon re-entry. And in some countries, you can do that a lot. Like if you're in Thailand, you can hop borders, you know, every 30 days as a Canadian and get a renewed stamp. But because it is, this is Tokyo or Japan, you know, the living costs are a lot more expensive and the border crossing guys start to get a bit suspicious about how it is that you make your living in Tokyo um, without working, right? How are you paying for things? So they start getting suspicious um, and uh, you can't really leave Japan and re-enter on a tourist visa as readily as you can in, in Thailand, for example. So how'd that year end up for you? A lot of people end up thinking, oh, I'm definitely going home, it was a great experience, or I'd like to renew for one year, but you did something a bit different. So I'm, I'm real curious about what you were thinking leading towards the end of that first year in Japan and how that brought you to um, Korea. There was a lot of things going on in my life, actually, at the end. So uh, uh, life in Tokyo was a bit, uh, towards the end, was a bit stressful. Um, Tokyo is a city that's great, uh, but if you're not careful as a young man, um, it, it can eat your life, <laughs> so to speak. You really have to uh, kind of have your, a solid head on your shoulders. I did a lot of partying, um, uh, a lot of drinking <laughs> in the first year. And so um, at the end, uh, I, I left Tokyo for a couple of, uh, couple of months. I lived in Paris uh, before the end and I came back and I was in Tokyo for another three months before actually leaving it. And the last three months um, I was struggling emotionally with certain things. Um, I was having a hard time finding uh, a job, another full-time job, which was bizarre. Because the visa situation in Japan is very different. Like when you come to Korea, um, basically your employer sponsors you and you belong to your employer. Like that's the E2 visa. Uh, in Japan, once you get your work visa, um, you are an independent uh, employee. You do not belong to the employer. The visa that you have is yours and you could basically just break your contract and leave. Uh, you know, I'm not recommending to do that. <laughs> But that's technically what you could do, and there there have been many people known to do that. But even so, with the work visa uh, that is you know your own, it's still difficult to find another full-time job. Surprisingly, so um, to top all of my personal things that I was going through, I was having a hard time finding a job. And one of my friends basically, I, I just needed a change of pace, and she suggested to come to Korea. Basically, she said, you know, um, Jack, if you're having a hard time, which I was, she says, go to Korea. It's easy. Uh, income is decent. It's laid back um, living because in 2005, Korea was still spe spe specifically um, Ulsan was still developing. Right. It was not the economic powerhouse that it is today. Um, so 
um, it was still very, very much laid back, I guess, compared to what it is today. Um, so that's what you said, come down here, uh, check it out, and so I did. How did you transition from Japan to Korea? What was that transition like for you? It must have been a little bit different than going from Canada to Japan. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess it was. Like I, um, you know, I had the year of living abroad under my belt in, in an Asian country. Because, yeah, Japan was my first trip to, to Asia. So, um, uh, I don't know, to be honest with you. <laughs> like uh, when I arrived in, in Korea, I was picked up at the airport <coughs> by the recruiter who took me down to my employment, uh, place of employment, dropped me off. I never saw the men again, but basically I was put into the school and put into the work and I had about a week, uh, week's time during which I could kind of uh, orient myself, uh, orientate myself uh, with the neighborhood and the new surroundings and stuff, so. Where were you working? Were you working in adult school again or were you working in a children's academy? No, no, I was working in a children's school. Was that school. public school or yeah. academy? Academy. Okay. It was an academy. So how'd that go yeah. for you? Was it a yeah. a fairy tale or was it the nightmare? Um, it wasn't as horrible as 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 some of the nightmares that I've heard of, but it wasn't definitely not a fairy tale. Uh, in at the end of the contract, I basically got um, swindled out of a bunch of money. Um, I was asked to do a favor in the form of staying an additional month because the school couldn't find uh, a teacher, a replacement teacher, so I did them that favor. And I guess as a return, they figured they would not have to pay me um, the... Uh, I didn't receive my flight uh, reimbursement, nor did I get the last month's uh, uh, pay, like the 13th month. Wow. Yeah, Does yeah, that make yeah. Sense? yeah. So, I guess what happened was, you know, because I did work 13 months rather than 12. Now, when I think about it retrospectively, I think the employer probably said, oh, we, we renewed a contract for another year, but the employee broke it a month after having been employed with us. And thus, we do not need to pay them the 13th month. That's probably what happened. <laughs> that sounds like a really familiar story for, I guess, for our listeners who haven't worked in Korea or don't really know the specifics of it typically a one-year contract is what you'll receive and your bonus at the end is one month's pay and a ticket home usually right yeah so when right. they and they do love to fire you in the 11th month so that they don't pay you that last month's severance and don't give you that ticket back so you really got to be wary about where you work um just for our listeners that don't really know yeah, this still happens to this day from what I understand. My friend right? worked at a Hagwon for five years here recently until about a year and a half ago, and the academy did not pay him uh, the wow, accumulated five-year severance pay. And yeah, it's it's going on a lot. Wow. It still goes on. It's shocking that it still happens to this day. I could talk about that for days, but I guess <laughs> you, you were in Ulsan that first year in Korea? Yeah, yeah, I was in Ulsan. The first year in Korea, I was in Ulsan. Uh, I moved to Busan since. Then we moved to England and Turkey. And then we came back to Korea to Gyeongju, then Masan. And then we ended up back in Ulsan. That's the coolest <laughs> life. Can you tell us? A... So I assume you met your <laughs> wife in Ulsan. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I met her here towards the end of my first year. So your experience in Korea might have been shaped by 
just kind of, you know, falling in love, getting married, and then going on with that next journey in your life. Could you tell us about that? Ooh, I don't know. What's there to tell? Uh, <laughs> I met my wife kind of the traditional way through a friend's friend. My friend was uh, um, uh, dating a girl. She was Korean. And one day he calls me up, says, hey, Jack, come on over. I'll introduce you to my girlfriend's uh, friend. And uh, his his girlfriend's friend and I got ended up getting married. And uh, he did not. <laughs> or they did not. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we just, you know, like when I met my wife, we, we, we uh, basically communicated uh, using hands and feet because her English was not that great. My Korean was absolute, absolute, you know, disaster. Um, and so we were having a lot of fun kind of getting to know each other, uh, communicating in a very broken way with a lot of alcohol and, and you know, body, body language. <laughs> Oh, that's adorable. Uh, and uh, and then um, yeah, we just kind of went along. We we my 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 wife is not like a, I don't know. She's I guess non-traditional. Uh, she has a non-traditional Korean background. She moved out of her house quite early um, and lived on her own. She had a career or, or job. I guess she was an interior designer when I met her, and she she's been doing that for a few years. And uh, um, so yeah. Our lives kind of aligned. I didn't. I didn't get to meet her family for a couple of years. I think after we met, I met her sister, but not actually her parents. So yeah, it was very interesting to meeting meeting my in-laws. They're good people, though. Very good people. <laughs> so during that first year, you met your soon-to-be wife, I suppose. Yeah. And so how long did you stay in Korea together before you moved abroad? Um. Uh, two years yeah two years and did you guys end up getting married in Korea before you went abroad yeah 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 we we got married in Korea um, and the goal was basically to leave Korea and never return um, we ended up doing um, going to Turkey um, and kind of spending our honey honeymoon in Antalya which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea um, and that was a week there it was very good Antalya is a beautiful place very nice um, and then we moved to England where I started doing my MA in linguistics and uh, my wife got pregnant um, and I have some family in England as well but the jobs I was holding in England, I was working, you know, because I needed a job so I started looking for uh, anything and everything and I, I, I um, contacted a recruiter or like a um, employment company and they would you know find job just odd jobs in, in factories moving stock or whatever and it paid very very minimum wage but I also um, worked with a, a supply teaching company um, and that was a lot better payment was a lot better but it was kind of on and off um, and they would just call me if you know if particular school needed a, a substitute teacher for the day um, <clears throat> so the jobs that I was doing were very uh, unstable and with a baby in tow I thought maybe it would be better we kind of thought about moving back to Korea because it just makes sense you know when a family is on the way when it's just you and 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 your wife or just two people two adults living abroad you know it's very easy to pack up your bags if something's uncomfortable and just move 
but as soon as there's little ones um, you know in the mix uh, things start to the the dynamic you know family dynamic starts to change and you start to think differently and we basically decided that um, moving back to Korea would give us uh, a lot more economic stability uh, that was probably the first thing uh, then you know we'd have a larger circle of family that would kind of support us and also we compared the the health care system that's in place in England with that in Korea and we decided that the Korean one is a lot better a lot more accessible and so we moved back. That is a huge part of what I consider whenever I think about moving back to the United States. Yeah, that healthcare system healthcare? is so broken. My dad's a doctor, <laughs> and it's still, I'll have to tell him, it's broken. This is horrible. I'm afraid to go there yeah. for vacation, just in case I get sick. Yeah. Right. So, did you move back in 2007? No, uh, we moved back in 2010. Okay. And I think we mentioned in the intro that you guys are the... You're the CEO of Shane English in South Korea. At that point, is that when you began the Shane English franchises? No. Um, when I came back in 2010, I began my university teaching career. <laughs> uh, I taught at Masan uh, Gyeongnam University for a year um, in Masan. Then I moved to... Oh, then I moved to uh, UNIST, which is the Ulsan National Institute of Science and Technology, and I was here for a couple of years. And then I worked for about three years in uh, in Gyeongju University. And uh, the air in Korea was getting so bad; I was getting really, really fed up with what was happening. And you know, uh, having a young one, a uh, little girl, we were really kind of struggling with what it is that we wanted we were thinking about moving back to canada but like i said the economics and the the ease of living in korea korea is a very comfortable country to live in you know in many ways so uh moving back home kind of creates a new set of challenges that you gotta face and you know we're really struggling with that uh and so i said that we have a choice of either leaving everything here and going to Canada and having to start from the beginning or um, we stay here but I thought um, I was getting tired of working for the men and as comfortable as university teaching is um, once you have a family the paycheck just doesn't cover it uh, the university paycheck itself doesn't cover it yes it affords you like you know four months vacation a year but teaching it like a, uh, if you're not teaching at one of the Sky Universities, um, and if you don't have a PhD, I only have a, had an MA, so uh, you know the salary is it's it's average, yeah. right? Um, so I was doing a lot of other teaching jobs, and I was out all day long. I was here, there, university, back there, and, and it was just keeping me very busy. And I thought, you know what? If I'm doing this, let's let's not do that, and let's just try our wet our feet at, at running a school, running a business. Um, quite honestly, my wife was a bit, she was not as much in favor of it as I was, but she was willing to go along with it. And she keeps throwing it in my face because it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work running a school, but uh, but yeah, we're, we're doing it. I'm really envious 
um, of the folks who do have university teaching experience. And then I'm doubly envious mm. of the people that do university teaching along with a study room. So a study room, for the listeners yeah. who don't know, is basically you teach kids out of your apartment. And some folks are able to make as much money or more than an academy. So I was wondering, did you think yeah. about that at all, doing university teaching along with study room? I did. I did all that. Uh, I was teaching at university. We had a study room and I was teaching private classes and companies. Um, and so our income, yeah, our income was quite good. Um, but I was busy. Like I never got to see my kids, hardly ever, um, because I was in and out of the house. Um, and uh, it just felt, uh, I don't know, I don't know. I, I wanted something different, something more concrete something less uh, hectic, I guess you could say. How many years did you do the university combination with the study room and privates? Um, about five, wow. I think. That's five such a long six. time. Yeah. yeah. I've heard that it's Very definitely exhausting, and especially, I'm a, re- I'm a kind of new dad, 18-month-old. It's weird. Mm. How- Congratulations. You. Congratulations to you <laughs> about eight years too late, but congratulations. <laughs> it's weird how much of how much regret you have when you're not able to see them like even if it's an hour a day or like in the morning 30 minutes you don't see yeah. them at breakfast you really regret that yeah exactly especially when you're a new dad man yeah I think I think everybody in your life must appreciate that you changed to a hogwan you know just because you're able to see the family a lot more yeah yeah that's uh questionable i guess like um, you know at least my kids can uh, they're here sometimes so i can see them throughout the day sometimes um but in the end uh, like i'm able to start the hog one work a little bit later so i get to see my kids in the morning i take them to, to their respective you know educational institutions uh and i set off about my day but then oftentimes throughout the week in the evening i get home and they're asleep like mondays you know after the podcast it finishes at 11 o'clock you know they're sleeping so um, and uh, there are occasions throughout the week when I teach a little bit longer, usually adult classes. Um, and so I get home and they're either on the way to sleep or already sleeping. So, Yeah. Well, you're killing it. I, again, to mention your YouTube channel, I see that and I'm like, I got to come home and put my shoes on after work and go outside with my daughter. Because <laughs> we need to go take advantage of time while we have it absolutely man absolutely like i didn't start start the youtube channel on you know until this year so prior to that i had a lot more time with my children and the youtube channel does not really like right now the way my time schedule is it doesn't really interfere with my time with my kids um because i do it most of the time either with them or when they're in school so it's not a problem but uh yeah uh the youtube channel is great like i've um I've been learning a lot. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work to grow your YouTube channel. Like, uh, you know, I've been I've been actively uh, uploading content for the past seven, almost eight months now. I've got about 150 videos. Uh, the first 20 of them are, like I said, they were geared towards cryptocurrency and they're not very good. Uh, I keep them right now simply because of the views, uh, the, you know, the ticker is on there. Um, but it takes a lot of time to promote your channel, to build the content, to make the content, to edit it, to promote the channel, uh, you know, gaining subscribers and all that stuff. It's, it's kind of a, you know, it's a game. 
but it is fun in a way uh, because it's you know you're creating something that is hopefully of value to some people um, and with time if you're if you're passionate enough if you're persistent enough I guess you know you might be able to to build something that is um, I don't know that might allow you to do it more on a full-time basis um, you know and, and support your economic needs as well if if you're lucky enough but the process itself it's it's a lot of fun like I'm learning a lot of things you know I've learned a lot of editing uh, skills um, um, some I don't know podcasting like I was never able to sit down and just chat away for an hour non-stop so that's another skill that you're learning I guess you know is you're running a podcast you know what it's like right you're trying to keep people entertained for 30 minutes to an hour and it's not always easy to come up with stuff to say that's why we got you on because it is difficult to <laughs> so we'll bring on more interesting people yeah yeah I, so. i'm really struck i uh, i definitely remember there was a guy i was never really into the youtube platform i never really liked um watching youtube videos you know in my past actually before we began house of english or owning hogwans i had a big geek blog it was right before the Marvel movies took off in about 2012 and 2011. Um, and I kind of missed that YouTube train. But I remember through the years, there were people that I liked, usually food YouTubers. And there was some guy, I can't remember, but he did YouTube videos in China. And he had like kind of mm -hmm. like a similar tale, I think, to to you and a lot of people. Uh, maybe even to me mm -hmm. with Pound Steve English. We come abroad, we end up teaching ESL, and you invest in your passions sometimes you pick up a hobby like youtube and i remember he was making really quality content about traveling around china and eating really cool chinese food and for two or three years he had at most like a few hundred or a few thousand subscribers and then suddenly six months a random six month gap existed and at the end of that six month gap he was you know at five hundred thousand subscribers i think his name was the food wow. ranger so oh yeah interesting yeah is he still around yeah he's i mean he's a big boy now so he's nice he's pumping out a ton of uh a ton of videos on chinese food anyway when mm. i came across your channel i was like this is really interesting stuff actually this is this is stuff that speaks to me as you know a dad in korea or an expat dad abroad teaching esl and i was like this is this is good this is gonna this is gonna find people well thank you man i'm glad that you're out there and enjoying it <laughs> yeah well now i gotta go on vacation i gotta pay for vacation because you had a really awesome video of going to malaysia right yeah yeah that was a really good trip uh it it was kind of hectic getting it set up prepared but uh like i love traveling you know my wife's saying like we we both love traveling if we could do it full time and that's what we would do unfortunately life is not that easy so um yeah whenever we get a chance uh, malaysia was great uh, we went to Kota Kinabalu for uh, a little bit, yeah, close to a week, I guess, maybe, something like that. Uh, very good stay. People in Malaysia, it was, this was our first trip to Malaysia. Um, people there are fantastic. I really like the Malaysian people. Um, and it was a good experience. Very nice to go visit new places. Definitely. I'm going to have to ask you after the show, but I need to figure out how, as an academy owner, we can figure out our vacation schedule because it's really difficult. The parents expect you to teach pretty much every day except the government holiday. Yeah, 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 it is difficult. Um, I guess as we're winding down here, I just should ask you, do you have anything that you want to tell the listeners, any advice, any really good tidbits that kind of sum up how to embrace this life abroad and 
be somebody like you who really kind of create a new life and a new lifestyle through it? Man, I don't know. Just take it one day at a time. Um, I, I think people tend to get overwhelmed. I, I see it in my wife. I don't know, if, again, if that's like a gender difference or if it's just my personality. I try to make life uh, as simple as I possibly can, you know. Life is difficult as it is, so find a way to make things simpler, make things to simplify things, to make things easier for yourself rather than more difficult. And, you know, to avoid boredom, uh, stay away from weekend drinking and explore this the country because one of the kind of things when i look back on my like early years in korea um you know i mean this was all part of the lifestyle and was fun but doing it every weekend now that i think of it you know going out uh drinking on saturdays and then basically wasting the sunday away because of a hangover uh that's kind of a waste so there was a lot of time that i could have done a lot more um, so I'm trying to do it now uh, and yeah just enjoy your stay do things explore experience do whatever you can and everything you can you know if you see something new don't shy away from it and, and try new things you live only once so why the heck not right absolutely and um, can we plug any of your stuff here at the end yeah go for it what, what are we plugging so <laughs> I guess if any of our listeners are ESL teachers in Korea and they're considering what to do in their next step or maybe they want to enter um, enter into the academy sphere you own a franchise or how, how would I explain that yeah well um, so Shane English is a uh, it's an um, English based franchise we've got a head office in England and another one in Taiwan which kind of takes care of the Southeast Asia or the Asian area and uh, we opened up our first school in Ulsan it is a it is a franchise so we have a full-blown curriculum um, books uh, flashcards and and teachers aids and everything else that needed and we keep developing it and basically if you are interested in starting a hug one uh, of your own um, uh, you can contact me um, and we can talk about stuff and we'll help you with you know with, with the steps of, of uh, setting up your own business in Korea with a with a ready-to-go curriculum. Yeah, and for our listeners here, I'll add all the contact information below. And opening up an academy in South Korea is kind of difficult, so it's always great yeah. to have a resource and a service there. Um, and I guess your YouTube channel, too. Yeah, the YouTube. If you're interested in what's happening in South Korea, um, see some of the expat life, uh, as well as listen to the uh, Monday podcast, which is on Hagwon and ESL teaching. And I try, I try to bring in guests as much, you know, as many guests as possible, kind of people who live and work in South Korea. Um, actually, I'm going to be sitting down with Wayne Finley, I think, in a couple of weeks again, um, and we're going to be talking about AI and how uh, that's going to affect possibly affect the ESL industry so that should be interesting uh, so you can find my channel on YouTube by either probably if you just type in crypto father because like I said the YouTube algorithm is kind of still going through this I'm trying to change the channel name to just living in Korea but if you type in living Korea uh, crypto father then you should be able to find the channel all right well great Jack Lewacki thanks so much for coming on here thanks Steven all right, and to all our listeners, we'll catch you next time. See ya.